You're listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast with Dr. Cameron Marshall. Ask Concussion Doc is a show where we answer your questions about concussions, treatment, and rehabilitation to help practitioners better manage these injuries. Enjoy the show. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from a concussion? Concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all of the local professionally trained concussion clinicians in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation, and will be able to quickly determine the root cause of your symptoms and work with you to develop a plan to get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving your symptoms, you can't ever hope to relieve them. Completeconcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and the net promoter score as judged by real patients is higher than Amazon, Netflix, and Apple. Completeconcussions.com slash find dash a dash clinic. You won't regret it. All right. Hello, everyone. Welcome to Ask Concussion Dog, episode number 67. Uh, This is Mental Illness Awareness Week in Canada. Uh, One of the uh, major initiatives of this campaign is the Faces of Mental Illness campaign, which is a national outreach campaign featuring stories of Canadians living uh, living in recovery from mental illness. You can connect on social media uh, using the hashtag MIAW19, Mental Illness Awareness Week 2019. Uh, As such, we obviously thought it was fitting to do an episode surrounding concussions and mental health. Um, It's a huge topic for concussions. Um, I know that I have this discussion a lot of times with my patients and it seems to be very helpful for them. And so I wanted to kind of bring this live to the patients that are watching, but also for the practitioners that are watching. Concussion and brain injury In terms of symptoms, a lot of times, um, concussion specifically, uh, the symptoms are very subjective. So they're based on self-reported symptoms of an individual. Um, Other conditions that you think about, let's say, um, you know, a broken bone, a torn muscle, a ligament sprain, even, you know, liver disease or some other disease in the body, we have objective findings for that. Right. If you have a fracture, you do an x-ray and you can see the actual fracture that's there, you know that the injury has taken place. If you have a torn muscle, you can do an ultrasound and you can see that the muscle's actually been torn. With a concussion, unfortunately, we're left to the subjective um, feelings of how somebody tells us they feel. We can't do an MRI and look at the brain and see a concussion because a concussion is actually a functional injury. And so it presents us with a lot of challenges. The second type of challenge is that the symptoms of concussion overlap with the symptoms of a lot of different things. And some of those things are mental health conditions, things like anxiety, depression, chronic stress, PTSD, etc. They are very, very interconnected in terms of um, their symptom presentation and how they feel. Um, So 
This is also the same for a lot of mental health disorders. We're often relying on the best thing we have, which is a lot of times is questionnaires and to determining anxiety or depression status or things like that is often just based on questionnaires and not necessarily on any type of, you know, objective imaging findings or anything like that. So we have this very difficult space where we have overlap in the symptoms, we have no real objective way to diagnose things, um, and that presents obviously some problems. And the deeper you get into this space, you start seeing more and more overlap between concussions and other types of conditions, meaning um, you know, headaches, for example. Just because you have a headache, that's one of the main symptoms of concussion, but what other conditions can cause headaches? Well, there's actually 150 different types of headaches. So just because you have a headache, it really doesn't mean that that's related to the concussion. Dizziness, there's a whole bunch of reasons why someone may feel dizzy. Fatigue, um, sadness, right? These are non-specific symptoms. Just because you have these symptoms doesn't mean that it's the concussion that is causing these symptoms. So getting back into concussion, so far from what we know, concussion seems to be a very short-term energy deficit in brain cells uh, with some accompanying kind of uh, vascular or autonomic nervous system component to it. Most of this stuff recovers within a very short period of time, within kind of two to six weeks. Beyond that, beyond that two to six week recovery period after concussion, when most of the physiologic stuff has kind of recovered and resolved, um, we have what's called PCS. This used to be called post-concussion syndrome. Uh, it then became known as persistent concussion symptoms. And the new term that's been floating around, uh, one that I kind of like, is prolonged concussion symptoms. Uh, persistent concussion symptoms gives the connotation that the symptoms are, are going to persist and stay, whereas prolonged means they're just lasting a little bit uh, longer than normal. So it gives it a little bit more of a, I guess, a hopeful kind of outlook. So there's a number of different potential causes for why somebody may have persistent symptoms. It may be, like I said, a vascular component, an autonomic component, um, you know, a blood flow issue, etc. But one of the main things it could be is psychological. It could be on the mental health spectrum. And I'm not saying this in terms of like the person is imagining it or the person is making it up or anything like that, but it's the overlap of these things. Um, for example, anxiety, depression, um, you know, these the symptoms of those things overlap with the symptoms of concussion, okay? So we're gonna get into this. Um, one of the problems that we run into from a human perspective is that we try to separate physical from mental health. And I think that we have to try and look at the two as completely intertwined things. Pain, for example, uh, is simply a sensation. And that sensation of pain is interpreted by our brains as being painful and uncomfortable. But people can train themselves to deal with large amounts of discomfort because it's kind of that mind over matter. You can train your brain to um, ignore, feel, whatever, and go in that direction. So your mind is extremely um, powerful. So that's kind of where I want to start with this talk is just how powerful um, the mind is. Um, with enough convincing and sometimes convincing of yourself, you can feel anything. Um, and I did a talk recently on what's called the nocebo effect. And so the nocebo effect, for those of you that know the placebo, um, just 
kind of illustrates how powerful the mind is. So in a placebo trial, and this is what we do with any type of medication or any type of clinical trial, is we'll give half the group the actual medication, we'll give the other half of the group a placebo pill, which means there's no actual um, medicinal ingredients in this medication at all. It's basically a fake medication that's designed to look like the original medication. And we'll tell both groups, you know, this is the trial, this is what you're getting involved in, you may be getting the actual pill, you may be getting the placebo pill, here's the potential uh, benefits of the drug, and here's the potential side effects of the drug. And the reason we do placebo trials is because people, even in the placebo group, that aren't getting the medication will actually start to exhibit the benefits of the medication. So for example, if the medication is designed to lower blood pressure, and we give uh, a one group the actual drug, we give take a whole bunch of people with high blood pressure, we give you know 50 people the actual drug, and we give 50 people the placebo, a lot of people, even in the placebo group, will actually have a reduction in their blood pressure. What? There's no medication there. How is that happening? That's how powerful the mind is. You're able to actually affect change without giving them any type of actual medication. That's why we have to involve placebos. Because if you were just to give everyone the main medication, it would appear that, hey, the drug really works. Everyone's blood pressure lowered. But is that actually the fact of the drug or is that the fact that they were involved in a clinical trial? Right? The, the, the belief that their blood pressure could be lowered is potentially what lowers their blood pressure. Now, on the same token, placebo, there's a thing called nocebo, where even people in the placebo group will start to experience the negative side effects of the drug they're not even taking. So, if let's say you're taking this blood pressure medication and one of the side effects is GI upset or nausea or any of these symptoms, people in the actual drug trial group will experience these negative side effects. But people in the actual placebo group will experience the same side effects. And people will actually drop out of the trial because they can't handle the side effects. But they're getting a drug that actually isn't anything. It's you know a sugar pill or something like that. So your mind is so powerful. The power of suggestion on an individual of here's what could happen and all of a sudden you start to realize that, yeah, you know what, my stomach is a bit upset and I am feeling these this way. And then you start to attribute it to the drug that you're taking, but what you don't know is that you're actually not taking the drug. So again, I did a full thing on this. I don't want to get too involved in it again, but it just goes to show you how powerful um, the mind is. And actually, when I was in when I was in school, we learned about a study that, um, and I, we were just talking about this um, a couple of weeks ago, I think I was talking about with your dad. But we learned about a um, uh, a study when I was in when I was in school, and what it was was uh, it was a dental study. That's kind of what I remember about it. And I don't know all the details, but I'm going to try and kind of summarize it for you. Is that it was a dental study, and it involved pain medication. So you had a patient sitting in a chair. And the dentist was blinded to what the patient was about to receive. The patient um, was blinded to what they were received. The only thing the patient was told was, um, we have two different types of medication. One of them can make you better and relieve all of your pain. The other medication could make you worse and make your pain worse. Okay? So here's what you might get. You might get something that makes your pain better. You might get something that makes your pain worse. The dentist told the same thing. You might get something that makes your pain better. You might get something that makes your pain worse. What 
none of them knew is that everyone was getting the actual pill that made the pain better. Okay, everyone was getting a painkiller, the same type, but they were just told that you could be getting one or the other and we're not sure which one you're going to get. Now they have a person in a back room who has the pills there. Then they have a person that goes from the back room and brings it and gives the medication to the patient. The person in the back room, when handing the medication to the delivery person, and the delivery person was told to deliver the administration or give the medication in the exact same way every single time. The person in the back room tells the delivery person, this is the medication that's going to make them better. And they go, okay. And they take the pill, they bring it into the patient, and they give it to the patient. Okay, next patient comes in. Person in the back room says, this is the pill that's going to make them worse. Gives the patient the medication, or the person brings it in the room, gives the patient the medication. They don't say anything to the patient, they just give them the medication. And they do it in the exact same way. But... When they looked at it, the patients who were given the medication by the person who was going back and forth, the, the delivery person, if, that, if the delivery person was told that the medication they were giving was the one that would make them worse, patients actually got worse. They reported higher pain. If the delivery person was told that this was the medication that was going to make the patient better, the patients reported much less pain. The delivery person didn't say anything, okay? They were just in their mind knowing as they were delivering that medication that shit, this is the one that's going to make this patient worse. In whatever they did in that transaction made that patient worse. And so that just goes for you healthcare professionals out there, how you deliver your messaging and how you convey even your body language and what you you know what's your expertise and what's your comfort level with a particular condition how good are you at managing this how comfortable are you with managing that that will actually influence the outcomes of your patients so there's forces going on in this world that are way beyond our perception and they are influencing your recovery. So this is what I mean when I'm talking about mental health. I'm not meaning that things are being made up or that you know, you're, you're, you're faking something or anything like that. I'm just talking about the external influences that may be imperceivable to the individual that are actually influencing how you recover. So that's just an interesting point. Okay, now... Getting back into the concussion world, it's been well established that having a previous diagnosis of depression, a history of anxiety, or any other pre-existing mental health condition drastically increases your risk of having prolonged symptoms. So this is, at least in part, due to coping mechanisms and your perception of the injury. Leventhal's self-regulation model. Patients construct representations of their health condition and symptoms which then becomes the basis for the coping and recovery. This is influenced by a few things. One, uh, the perceived recovery duration. If I have an injury or an illness, how long is it going to take me to get better? If I think that the recovery is going to be short, I'm going to feel better about that, right? My coping style, my resilience, I'm going to I'm going to be able to cope with that a lot better than if I get something like a diagnosis that's you know terminal, right? You cannot recover from this. That is going to change how I cope. Second way in which this is influenced is the degree to which symptoms are experienced and the degree to which they are attributed to the condition itself. 
So this becomes the idea behind misattribution of symptoms. If I have a headache, right? People get headaches all the time. But if I have a headache and I had a concussion a month ago, I'm immediately going to think that this this headache is due to the concussion I had a month ago. I'm not going to think, well, this is just a random headache that I get from time to time. Okay. Next point. Concussion symptoms, as I mentioned already, are very non-specific. Um, so plus, what happens throughout our lives oftentimes represents these concussion symptoms. So like I said, sadness, fatigue, uh, confusion, uh, memory impairment, uh, headaches, dizziness, all these things happen from day to day. Okay, I'm going to use an example here. So if I walk into a room and forget you know, well, let's actually use two hypothetical people. We have healthy person and then we have concussed person. Healthy person walks into a room and goes, why did I come in here? Huh? All right, it'll come to me and they'll leave and they'll go about their day and they won't think anything else of it. Concussed person walks into a room and says, why did I come in here? Oh my God, my memory is so bad since my concussion. My I just can't think of anything. And then that becomes a, another um, um, almost like self-fulfilling prophecy of like, it, it just guides them down the direction of like, yep, I knew my memory was impaired and here's one more tick that my memory is actually impaired. Okay. Whereas the person, this is stuff that happens to everybody day to day. This is normal life stuff. People walk into rooms every day and forget why they came in there. But yet every patient I see will say, memory impairment and I say what do you mean by memory impairment like do you forget your family members do you forget where you are you know do you forget where you live no it's I walk into a room and I just can't remember why I came in there that's like regular life stuff okay um, another example patient just last week sent me by their insurance company and I often get these cases that are difficult cases that the insurance company, that someone's on long-term disability or something like that, and the insurance company wants me to take a look at them and also for me to start treating them to try and speed things along. So this patient comes in, we start talking, concussion was uh, last year, and uh, we're going through everything, and what are your main symptoms? So I get to the question of what are your main um, symptoms? And he reports uh, headaches, Okay, I have constant headaches all the time. I feel lightheaded all the time. I feel uh, nauseous and I feel that I have memory impairments. Okay, so start going through, you know, standard. Those are pretty typical symptoms, right? Anybody who's got a concussion right now that's sitting listening to this, the symptoms are going to be, um, you know, pretty standard for what you would experience. Um, then we're going into the medical side of things, this medical history, and I ask him if he's taking any medications. He goes, yes, I was prescribed this particular medication for my headaches by my neurologist uh, within you know a month after my injury. So I take a look at the medication and it's an anti-seizure drug used for epileptics but it's also been used off-label for migraines. So this neurologist thought that this patient may have migraines and so he's been given this medication. And so now it's been, you know, six months or you know eight months or however long it's been since he's been on this medication and I say, but you're still getting headaches every day. And he says, yeah. And I said, well, is the medication working? And he's like, well, now that you mention it, maybe it's not. And then I'm like, well, let's look up the side effects of this particular medication. In the list of side effects, it is lightheadedness, nauseousness, 
and memory problems and fogginess and all the symptoms that this person is experiencing. So this doesn't really necessarily go with the mental health side of things, but it goes with the misattribution of symptoms, right? Immediately, his whole world was thinking that this was concussion related, this was brain injury related, but it never ever once considered the fact that it could be a side effect of the medication that's not working that he's been put on, okay? So concussion a lot of times is this puzzle of figuring out why are the symptoms there, right? Concussion is a short duration piece, okay? It creates a little bit of an issue, for three to six, two to six weeks. Beyond that, it's something else, right? It's either blood flow, neck, visual vestibular, uh, in, in, inflammatory, psychological, or now hormonal is another one that's coming up, hormone imbalances. So you have to consider all these different pieces. And in a lot of cases, it's driven on the psychological side of things. The next one on this, so so far we have perceived recovery duration, degree to which symptoms are experienced, and the degree to which they are attributed to the condition. Perceived control of the illness. Can I do anything for myself? Historically, we've told concussion patients that nothing can be done. You just have to sit there and do nothing until you recover. Rest. Don't do anything. Don't even look at a screen. Don't socialize. Don't go with your friends. Don't go to work. Okay? Do nothing. That was the, that was the, the treatment. Not only is that incorrect, and there's so much evidence now to suggest that the best forms of treatment are actually exercise and actually taking maybe a day off and getting back into work, back into activity. And then if you feel you know dizzy, overwhelmed with crowds, it's exposure. It's going to hang in out with crowds. So not only is that an incorrect piece of advice to rest and do nothing, but it's actually damaging to the individual because it takes away the perceived control of the illness. Next one, degree of understanding of the illness. How much do you understand what's going on? Do you understand what this is? Do you understand what the process is? Do you understand how it recovers? What you can expect from your recovery? Any of this stuff, that's gonna influence how your recovery goes. I spend a good 15 to 20 minutes with every single one of my patients explaining exactly what concussion is, exactly what could be causing their persistent symptoms, and exactly what they can do for themselves to start helping themselves today. Here's some strategies you can do in the meantime. We're gonna do a treadmill test, we're gonna get you exercising, we're gonna give you this diet to help you start eating better, all these things. Immediately, my wife is here and she's also treating a lot of concussion patients and she can attest to this, that just by providing that education, immediately you will see a 50% reduction in people's concussion symptoms. I have a patient coming in, symptom score of 75 out of 132. That's a really high symptom score. I provide them with education, reassurance. I explain to them everything that's going on. And then I see them two days later to do their treadmill test. And their symptom score is now a 30. I didn't do anything. I didn't touch anything. All I did was educate. And this is where expertise of the clinician becomes so important, right? You shouldn't just be dabbling in concussion because if you know a little bit of information, that's potentially dangerous because you're gonna tell your patient stuff that isn't accurate. And if you're providing them with information that's not accurate, you're gonna mess them up because they're going to internalize that and you're potentially going to affect their coping strategies along the way. So I just can't stress that enough. If you're gonna manage concussions, Develop expertise in concussions. 
don't dabble with it. Don't, you know, it's not like, well, I'm kind of going to mess around with this. It's like, there's a lot of information here and you have to know the nuance of it to be able to feel comfortable and confident and to be able to help your patient feel confident and comfortable with it and help to reduce some of this stuff that could potentially prolong their injuries. Um, I have a patient right now, another patient example, she's getting better. She said, you know, her concussion was, I think it was like three months ago now. So after about a month, she's feeling a lot better, but she'd had a neurology consult appointment booked from her when she first had her concussion injury. So she decides, well, I'll go see what the neurologist says anyway, but I'm feeling pretty good. I have maybe a couple symptoms remaining on a really good recovery course. This person has a history of anxiety and depression throughout her teenage years. She's now 18 or 19 or something. So then she goes to the neurologist and the neurologist says, well, you shouldn't have symptoms now. That's way too long. Something's wrong. If you have symptoms now, something's wrong. She internalizes that, spirals out of control, and I see her on day 60, and her symptom score is 80 out of 132. You take a patient who's almost recovered and provide them with the wrong information, and now their symptoms are off the charts. All right? Happy story is that after the education and reassurance, she came back in for her treadmill test four days later, and her symptom score was now a 31. I didn't do anything. I didn't do any rehab. All I did was educate and reassure. So that tells you how much of these symptoms can be driven by our own thought processes. What we're led to believe in a particular way can completely change how we recover and how we respond. And this is the overlap because everything's subjective. We're relying on what people tell us and we can affect how people feel about that just by giving them the right information, giving them some things they can do, telling them and reassuring them that your brain is not damaged. You went through a concussion injury, but it's a very temporary short-term thing. And here's how we're going to help you get better. And here's what you can do to help you get better. All right. So back to our coping skills, because I'm going to try and tie all this in now. This one's a long one. Um, high copers versus low copers, which also is known as high adapters versus low adapters. Again, we're talking perceived recovery duration. How long is this going to take me? Degree to which the symptoms are experienced and attributed to the illness or the injury itself. Perceived control. What can I do? How do I get better? And degree of understanding of the injury. One of the best predictors of prolonged recovery, and this was even talked about in the Berlin Consensus Statement, uh, is the symptom severity score. And the way that this has been attributed, the symptom severity score is, is when people come in, you ask them 22 main symptoms, and they score them from 0 to 6 in terms of how bad they are. And that'll give you an overall severity score. Um, the total is usually out of 132. There's different scales, so sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but generally 132 is the one that's most commonly used, zero to six rating scale. A lot of studies have said, well, the reason why people are, you know, they come in, they have a high initial symptom severity score, that means that the injury itself is more severe. But when you dig a little deeper, you find out that people that have poor coping skills and higher anxiety report higher symptoms initially. So is the fact that they have a high symptom severity score reflective of the fact that they have a more severe injury than those that have a lower one? Or is it reflective of the fact that they have poor coping skills or higher anxiety levels that, you know, leads them down that belief pattern? So 
A study done in New Zealand had concussion patients fill out a symptom severity score as well as questionnaires to determine their coping styles. And they lumped them into groups as low adapters, medium adapters, or high adapters. On the initial assessment, patients who were in the low adapter group had stronger negative beliefs about concussion and the perceived recovery. So they believed the injury to be more significant and that the outcomes were going to be much worse. They had a higher symptom severity score than those in the medium and high adapter group. Six months later, they did a follow-up on all these people and they found that those in the medium and high adapter groups had pretty much all recovered. Those in the low adapter group had not. So is the initial symptom severity score predictive or you know, a determining factor of more severe injury or is it uh, uh, an indicator that this person has potentially poor coping mechanisms and needs to be really pushed through the educational stuff, really provided with that reassurance, given the right information and put on the right path. And the interesting thing in here is if you look at patients who come into the emergency department and then follow up with them 30 days later and try to find out how many people still have symptoms, you see that about 35 to 40% now still have symptoms. And this is with no intervention. So this is getting worse. It used to be 10 to 15%. Now it's 35 to 40%. So are concussions getting worse? Or is it the fact that what we're learning about it and the media coverage on it and people start Googling and reading the horror stories of it and they start to perceive the illness or the injury as being more severe than it actually is and now we end up with a huge percentage of people that have these prolonged persistent symptoms. In our clinics, we spend you know, a good 15 to 20 minutes with every single patient providing them this education and reassurance and guess what? We don't see that we see a much lower percentage of people actually having persistent symptoms. And I think it's because we're just doing the right things at the right times. So again, it comes down to expertise. How much do you know about this topic? How much can you reassure your patients? When your patient asks you a difficult question about a certain thing, do you know enough to say, here's what the research says and here's how we, we are gonna go about doing that? Because that's gonna be the reassurance the patient needs. Right? If you're going to say, well, no, if you're doing anything that causes symptoms, you have to back off on that, that's going to make that patient worse. And their only recourse is to withdraw and retract and become more insular and more isolated and actually get worse over time. Okay. So getting back to the research, I'm going to throw out a few studies here just to reiterate my point. Sullivan et al. 2015, lower psychological resilience was the strongest predictor of who would go on to have post-concussion syndrome. Hutchison, 2014, high school students with a history of anxiety, depression, or ADHD took significantly longer to recover than those without. Uh, Lagaretta, 2018, high school athletes with a family and personal history of psychiatric illness were five times more likely to develop post-concussion syndrome versus controls. Even those with just a family history of mental health uh, issues were two and a half times more likely to develop post-concussion syndrome. Yang et al. 2015, over one-third of athletes develop trait anxiety following a concussion. So not only can pre-existing stuff lead to prolonged symptoms, but concussion itself can lead to anxiety and depression. And I think a lot of this is based on how we're treating people. If I take any person and I put them in a room that's dark by themselves and tell them not to socialize, not to go on their phone, not to watch TV, not to go to school, not to go to work, they're going to become anxious and depressed. 
It's a punishment we use for criminals in jail to put them in social isolation and put them in the, you know, what do they call it, the shoe or something like that. They throw them in the, in the hole and they have darkness. That's a punishment. And this is what we're doing to concussion patients because people will actually start to lose their minds in this situation. So not only can it be pre-existing that leads to this, but the injury itself can lead to this. And then the recovery becomes much longer. But I also think it's a very strong problem with how we're dealing with it. This is what we call iatrogenic disability, I mean disability that is caused by improper intervention by healthcare professionals. Healthcare professionals with limited knowledge in this area telling patients to rest and do nothing is the worst possible advice. And I think that this is what's probably leading to a lot of this stuff that's then preventing recovery because of our coping styles now become, I have no control over my illness. The recovery duration is completely unknown. Da, 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 da. And now how am I supposed to get better? Right? And then that we have to try and undo all that stuff. Uh, Duresh et al. 2019, psychological resilience significantly predicted self-reported PCS. Quote, our results indicated that anxiety and depressive symptoms may indeed act as mediators of the relationship between psychological resilience and PCS, such that lower resilience predicted greater anxiety and depressive symptoms, which in turn predicted increased PCS in this population. Set all at all, um, set all at all <laughs> in 2017. Individuals who use avoidant or passing coping styles, passive coping styles, report elevated levels of anxiety and depression following concussion. So, numerous studies, and actually recently there was just a, a, a journal that came out with from a conference, and it was uh, it was more like military medicine type stuff, but it was finding that people with PTSD, military veterans with PTSD and concussion, were more likely to have prolonged outcome than patients with just concussion alone. So the PTSD element was really the determining factor of how somebody would recover. And this is the overlay with chronic stress, PTSD, anxiety, depression, and the symptoms and how they all intertwine, it prevents or, or hinders someone's ability to recover. So um, I might have to save this one for another talk, but I usually go into a lot of like default mode stuff, but I think we're getting a little bit long on time. So I think I might just save that one for another. I'll do a full talk on default mode uh, network and executive network um, stuff and some of the, the new research coming out with the hallucinogenic medications and things like that. I'm gonna do a whole um, topic on that. That might be a good one for a guest actually too. We'll see if there's anybody out there that might be, might be interested in that. But um, anyway, so just to kind of summarize this, and I just want to drive this point home. If you're a patient out there and you're struggling with symptoms and it's been more than a month or two months, you should definitely be involving some sort of psychological mental health well-being into your care plan, right? We can't just be focused on the physical because at some point it, it becomes a lot of intertwined with the mental side of things. And it, it will help you to recover, I promise you that, but involving psychotherapy, uh, one of the best treatments that's out there for persistent concussion symptoms has actually been shown to be cognitive behavioral therapy. Uh, and this was also featured in Berlin. So with exercise and diet and all this other stuff, cognitive behavioral therapy is one of the top treatments for concussion. And it's because of these reasons. So I'm not suggesting that all of your symptoms are related to this, but I'm suggesting that some of them may be, and it's worth exploring. On the other end, if you're a healthcare professional and you're treating concussions and you don't have like a really strong expertise in this area, you are potentially just making your patients worse. 
So either with concussion, if you're going to treat it, you're either all in or you're out. And I can't stress that enough. On that note, it's a good soundbite, Sam. You should throw that in. <laughs> uh, any questions come in? I'm sure there was a couple people commenting on stuff. Yeah? Um, someone asked about hyperbaric oxygen. Sort of Not really the topic, but... Yeah. Um, someone asked about um, the medication Topamax if that's the one you were talking about, which I don't think it was. It was not, mm -hmm. but I've had patients with Topamax before. Yeah. And I've had patients who, who like say that it's like super, super helpful. And I've had other patients that report a ton of different side effects with it. Um, but if you're on any type of medication, which really the research shows that any type of pharmaceutical for concussion is ineffective. Um, so, but you know, when you're somebody without a lot of tools in the toolbox, throwing a medication at something seems like the logical thing to do. And, but it doesn't work. But also the side effects, of a lot of these medications are very similar. Headaches, dizziness, nauseousness, etc. So if you're on a medication, take a look, Google up what the side effects are of that medication and kind of overlay it with your symptom profile and try to see maybe some of the symptoms you're experiencing are actually related to the medication that that you're taking. Um, I wasn't talking about Topamax, but... Yeah, no, I thought... And then someone had mentioned, I think we were talking about... Um you know, forgetting where you were when you walk into a room and someone said, doesn't frequency make a difference? I think what she means is, I guess if it's happening a lot, more I'm than, assuming yeah. that's what she meant, yeah. but I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. I mean, so that gets into the default mode side of things. Yeah. Um, so that's more of a... Yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll cut it on the podcast, but I can talk about it now real quick. So anyway, those that are still on, if that person's still on, um, the, the two main brain networks, you have what's called the default mode network. You also have what's called the executive network. Your executive network is when you're focused on a particular task, when you're actually dialed in, you're doing a math test, you're, you know, you're, you're focused, you're in, you're, you're hundred percent dialed in. That's your executive network. You, on the other side, you have what's called the default mode network. And the default mode network is your kind of your self-talk. The little voice inside your head that's going through, um, you know, what you have to do later and, you know, what is that and, you know, all your kind of random thoughts. That's your default mode network. That's also known as what's called your ego. So depending on, you know, what psychological stuff you're, you're looking at, that can be called the ego, which is your sense of self. That little voice inside your head that is who you are, right? The little thoughts you have. That's your default mode network. When your executive network is active, Okay, so when you're dialed in and focused on a task, the default mode network shuts off. Your executive network is on, and then now if the executive network turns on, you kind of go back to your default mode network and you have kind of your random, you know, your random thoughts. In patients with persistent concussion symptoms, when they're on their executive network and focused on something, their default mode network doesn't shut off. And so what you end up with is what's called default mode interference. So your default mode network is affecting your executive network. So the task you're trying to do, the performance suffers. So you're not as good at performing, but also you're burning a lot more energy to try and do that task and it becomes more confusing. So um, uh, another way in which, well, I'll just go back to the fMRI study. So in fMRI studies, when they look at this, they take healthy people, put them in, and they give them a task to do. They'll see that this one shuts off, this one turns on, and when they take the task away, this one turns on, this one turns off. But when you see a concussion patient, both of them turn on, 
and their performance on the task suffers. Um, if you take somebody with anxiety, you see the same thing. When you take somebody with PTSD, you see the same thing. When you see somebody with chronic stress, you see the same thing. So both networks are active. So just because you walk into a room and you're having more frequent episodes of walking in and forgetting why you came in there, that could be anxiety. That could be chronic stress, right? You're not going to work. You're not doing you know, this and that. So all your thoughts are piling up in your head about why am I still like this and da, 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 da. And all of a sudden you walk into a room and you go, why did I come in here? Right? It's the thoughts that are escaping you because you're overwhelmed with so much stuff to do. And this will happen to somebody who's under a lot of even just work stress, right? You're under a lot of work stress, a lot of stuff going on. You know, your wife calls you at work and says, hey, um, you know, can you pick up some, uh, you know, bananas on your way home from the office? And you're like, yeah, yeah, I'll do that. And you're driving home and you're in your head and you're going through all the shit you have to do tomorrow and today and everything else. And all of a sudden you end up at home, you walk in the front door and your wife goes, bananas? And you go, shit, I forgot the bananas, right? Did you actually forget the bananas? No, because you can remember as soon as she says bananas, you go, oh yeah, you remember that she told you to get bananas. So you didn't forget. You don't have a memory problem. You have an, atten an attention problem. You literally just are thinking about too much other stuff. That's default mode interference, right? Have you ever been driving and all of a sudden you get an hour into your drive and you realize that you can't remember the entire first hour of your drive? And it's not because you can't remember it. It's because your mind was somewhere else the entire time and everything else was just kind of happening because it's so routine for you. So walking into a room and forgetting why you came in there with increased frequency does not tell me anything about concussion or brain damage or anything else. It's to me, that's too much going on. That's overwhelmed. That's stressed. That's anxiety, all that stuff. That's default mode interference. The purpose of therapy and the purpose of a lot of psychological intervention is to quiet the default mode and that's exactly what we're talking about here. I There's more going on over there? It's, just, it's more just comments about um, personal cases. Yeah, we There's can't comment. Saying, they can't comment, but there's someone saying um, this is exactly what's happening to me right, right. now. Right, exactly. So, so in that case, don't consider that to be, oh, my brain is damaged or messed up. Because somebody who has generalized anxiety disorder is experiencing the same things. It's a sense of being overwhelmed and you can't put anything together. There's just too much going on. You can't put anything together. And that that's disabling. It's You can't do shit. Okay? But don't think of that as my, my brain is damaged. Right? It could be an anxiety condition, which is treatable. Right? I've had so many patients that will come in and they're like, no, no, it's not that. It's not something wrong with me. Something's wrong with me. No, no, it's not that. It's not that. It's not that. And finally, I convince them, talk to your doctor about some medication and see if maybe a short trial of anxiety medication or, or antidepressants might help you. And they'll come back two weeks later and be like, oh my God, symptom score zero, 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 zero. Okay, what happened? Well, I, you know, I, I talked to my doctor, I got put on medication and boom, there you go. Right? So what you might be sitting there and struggling with and I'm not getting better, I'm not getting better, I'm not getting better. Consider, just consider, please, the mental health side of things because if that's treatable, that's all treatable. And if you can treat that, you can potentially quiet that default mode network and all of a sudden have some clarity. So when you walk into room, that frequency becomes less and less. All right. Cool.
Thanks for joining. Thanks for getting involved in the conversations. Whoa, wait, 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 wait. Just one more thing before you go. This episode is brought to you by the Complete Concussion Management Clinical Network. Are you suffering from concussion symptoms that just aren't getting better? Maybe you're in the wrong place. Maybe you're seeing the wrong healthcare professional. Visit completeconcussion.com slash find dash a dash clinic to find all the local professionally trained concussion rehab individuals in your area. Each of our partnered clinics have gone through extensive training on concussion assessment, management, diagnosis, treatment, and rehabilitation. Uh, They're going to work with you to try and find the root cause of your symptoms and then develop a treatment plan and approach to help get rid of them. If you don't know what's driving the symptoms, you can't ever help or hope to fix them. CompleteConcussions.com slash find a clinic. They have a 98% patient satisfaction rating and have a higher net promoter score than Amazon, Apple, and Netflix. CompleteConcussions.com slash find a clinic. You will not regret it. Thank you for listening to the Complete Concussion Management Podcast. If you like the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a review. Have questions about concussion management for future episodes? Submit them to our website, Facebook, or even Instagram. See you next time.